Thank you guys for being here. I'm excited to be with you guys tonight. I feel a little bit like um, Kurt Warner's out of the game and um, I'm his backup QB. Pressure's on. I listened to, to Lynn's message, most of it from last uh, Tuesday night and how he was going through 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and into chapter 4. And I just thought, oh my goodness, I've got my work cut out for me tonight. Um, He's a master at teaching the word and referencing other things and all that kind of good stuff. So I know you guys have been uh, having a great experience in 1 Corinthians. I just pray I don't ruin that tonight. I want us to do something real quick. We're going to, to pray one more time. Um, the, the reason I want to do that is a, is a couple fold. Number one, the passage we're looking at tonight um, is about the leaders in the church, first and foremost. And we have a group of godly men in uh, room A102. Our elders are in a meeting tonight. And I just felt it would be very appropriate to pray for them. And so I just want to ask you to just take a moment. there at your seats. Pray for our elders. Pray um, for God's wisdom. Pray that just the Holy Spirit of God would fill that room with unity. And that they would be able to hear God's voice and, and follow God's lead uh, as through their discussions tonight. Okay, let's do that real quick. God, we thank you so much for this church. We thank you so much for the the men that are in that room meeting that you've called uh, to lead our church. We thank you just for the unbelievable things you've done in the 15 years that Cornerstone has been around. And we thank you for every single life that has been changed um, because of the work that you, Jesus, have done um, through this ministry. And God, we just pray for the men tonight in the room, for the elders, for Lynn as they're leading, as he's leading that team, God, that you would give them wisdom, God, just as Paul wrote, um, that, that you would give them um, eyes of understanding and fill them with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And, and just Holy Spirit, we pray you would move powerfully in that room. God, we just pray that even in this place tonight as well, you would make your word come alive, God, as we study the truths of your scripture, God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would challenge God, just us at the very depths of who we are tonight, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so go ahead and get your Bible out. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We have a couple of mic runners. And so um, if you have a question, if you have a comment, don't hesitate to, to raise your hand and they'll find you. I, I may get into a routine and you may have to just raise your hand, wave me down, stop me, whatever. Because if I get going, I may get a little excited tonight and not uh, notice your hands. But wave me down. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I'm going to start in verse 1. I know uh, Pastor Lynn dealt with that a little bit. But to get the context, let's start reading there in verse 1. I've been sick and I made it through five service Sunday and I coughed one time. But man, I feel it's coming on right now. So just pray for my voice too. All right, verse 1. So then... Men ought to regard us, the apostles, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with secret things of God. And I heard the interaction you guys had last week as as Lynn asked, what are the secret things? What are the mysteries? And and we we sort of figured out it's the gospel. It's the truth of salvation that that God has given us. But but something is going on here in Corinthians that we've got to understand. There's a leadership problem going on in the church at Corinth. There is a leadership problem that is, that is plaguing. There's these little cliques that have attached themselves. And, and you guys have heard about this, but there's certain sects of people who say, hey, I, I follow Apollos. There's other people that are like, I follow Cephas. There's people like, hey, I follow Paul. And then there's the really, really spiritual people that are like, I follow Jesus. 
And they were saying it in a way that that was bragging to where they were they were dividing themselves up and they were creating these factions among themselves. And they're saying, well, well, I really like the way that this guy speaks. And this guy's funny. And when he talks, I'm just so entertained. I like the way he, he he does sermons or I like the way this guy leads. And when he leads, I just agree with everything he says. Now, aren't you glad that kind of thing doesn't happen in America today? How many of you have been in church for longer than like 15, 20 years? How many of you have been in church a long time? How many of you have been in church a long time have seen some fairly ugly things happen in church? My first memory of church, like, like not church in general, but like big church, you know, mommy and daddy, big church. My first memory of church, I was in the fifth grade. I was sitting in the very back of Allen J Baptist church in high point, North Carolina. When I heard some men stand up and start shouting about our pastor, these bad things and saying, that man's a crook. That man's a thief. He doesn't know what he's doing. And I'm like, wow, church is exciting. It looked like the the wrestling matches that I watched on TV and I couldn't exactly understand what was going on, but I knew that they weren't happy and they weren't happy and somebody had a problem. Now, now that's an extreme that that unfortunately probably too many of us have, have been a part of. But there's these minor little issues that get in there. I don't know how, how in tune you guys are with, with different preachers, but I got into a, a, a big podcast thing where on my little iPod, I was actually exercised a while back and I stopped doing that. It hurt too bad. But I would listen to different sermons. And I, there's just part of me that would be like, oh, I really like this guy. I think I'll be one of this guy's fans. Or I really like this guy. I think I'll, I'll, I'll be with him. And there's something going on within Christianity in America that's almost pitting people against each other. Pitting, can you believe this? churches against one another can you believe that pitting people who are doing great work for jesus christ against each other and there's this interesting little thing that happens within church world called competition and it is an ugly ugly thing so paul comes on the scene here in corinth and paul says we've got a problem We've got a problem. You're, you're, you're judging these guys on superficial criteria. You're, 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 you're landing in a camp based off of all the wrong reasons. And in that society you guys have been talking about, there were certain things back then that they valued. And some people valued just pure outright wisdom. Not godly wisdom, as, as you guys have le- learned through the first three chapters. Not necessarily godly wisdom, but human wisdom. And some people just said, wow, you are an orator. And when you speak, you're so wise. And the sermons may not have had anything to do with Jesus, but they were just like, wow, you're so wise. And they started saying, I want to follow that person. Not because that person was leading them to Christ, but because that person was persuasive and charismatic. And so Paul comes back and he says, hey, hey, don't get caught up in the show. Don't get caught up on the superficial things. What is he teaching? Is he leading you to Christ in a deeper understanding of the gospel, the mysteries, the secrets, or is he just entertaining you? And Paul says, beware, because Paul says that men ought to regard us as, you guys talked about this word last week, servants of Christ. So here's Paul. And, and, and Paul's a stud. 
<clears throat> I don't mean he looked like a stud. He's a stud. Like he's he's the valedictorian. He's got these seminary degrees, these PhDs of that time, whatever. He has all the letters behind his name. He's just a genius. He's educated. He knows what he's talking about. And Paul says, I want you to look at me and I want you to think of me not by all of my credentials, not by all of my accomplishments, not by my performance. I want you to look at me and I want you to think of me as a servant. And the word he used here, there's different words for servant in the Greek. There's, there's one word, the diakonos, that would refer more to like a deacon, a person who serves or waits tables. This is a different kind of word. This word literally means, it's, it's the lowest of all low servants of that day and age. And, and, and I can't even go into what that whole structure looked like. But in that day and age, it was the, the lowest word, the most menial task you could ever imagine. It referred to the men in the bottom of a boat, a ship, who were the very, very lowest level, and they were the rowers. It was literally the most menial task you could do in that day and age. And Paul says, that's my reputation. That's how I want you to think of me as a servant. Not as some eloquent speaker, not as some man full of wisdom, not some powerful orator. Think of me as a servant. Think of us, the leaders, the apostles as servants. Now, now here's where I want to make sure that this comes home. What Paul is doing here is very specifically he's calling out the leadership of the church. And he's calling to a higher standard. But you remember over and over again Paul says things like this. Follow my example. Okay, Paul says, follow my example, because he's giving us an example that every single one of us can follow. And, and though this passage does specifically relate to the apostles, there, there's something interesting that the Bible goes on to say in many, many times in many different ways. When it's talking about these ministers like Paul, it expands it a little bit. And it says, not only were these guys ministers of the gospel, every single one of us who has accepted Jesus Christ and has the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, every single one of us is a minister of the gospel. Got that? Okay. So if you follow Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you're a minister. I need you to say this with me. Say, I am a minister. Okay, now look at somebody beside of you and say, I am a minister. Okay, so now, ministers, we're going to follow the example that Paul has given us, okay? So he says this, we, uh, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those who have been entrusted with the secret things of God. That we've been entrusted. It's almost like a relay race that, that, that Jesus came and he ran his laps and he did his thing and he's passed the baton and he said, it's your turn, church. It's your turn, ministers of the gospel. Take the baton. Take it to the ends of the earth. It's your turn to run. And he says, we've been entrusted with this. We've been a a steward, first of all. uh, Or a servant, first of all, I'm sorry. Of others. That we have been called to serve others and put their needs ahead of ourselves. A servant of the word of God. Luke chapter 1, verse 2. I'll I'll throw out some scriptures like that occasionally. Luke chapter 1, verse 2. Luke says, we are servants of the word of God. What do you think that means? I did pause for questions. What do you think that means? What does it mean to be a servant of the word of God? 
Well, you have to speak the truth, which is God's word. Okay. And you speak can't the just truth? put. Is that what you said? Yeah, speak yeah. the truth. God's word is the truth. Absolutely. And so you can't just put your ideas or philosophies into religion and call it God's word because that's not God's word. Okay. Um, but before you speak the truth, you have to what? Know the truth. Know the truth. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Over here. I think it also means to do what he is asking us to do, to live it. Sure. Similar to like a servant in a home, you're going to do it the way they want it to be done. Sure. So we need to do it Christ's way and God's way. Absolutely. To not just be hearers of the word, but what? Doers also. to, to, To be servants of the word means that we submit our lives and we submit our wills to the authority of the scripture that God has given us. That we say, God, I willingly lay my life down. I, I lay my own wisdom, my ways of thinking. And, and God, I, I thought my life was going this way, but then I encountered your scripture. And, and I feel like your scripture may be leading me in this direction. Which one do I choose? When my way and your way doesn't line up. Well, I'm a servant to the word of God. I, I, I submit myself to the word of God. <clears throat> he uses this word also, not just servants, but we've been entrusted. The word there is we've been not just servants, but we've also been stewards. We've been given this stewardship of the word. And, and I agree absolutely with what you said. Number one, the stewardship is, is to proclaim God's word. It's to speak it. If you have your Bibles, turn real quick to Titus chapter 1. It's not just a stewardship of speaking. It, it is that. It is proclaiming it. It is living it. But it's also more than that. If uh, Jesus proclaims that he is the word of God, then aren't we supposed to proclaim Jesus? Then? Absolutely. Absolutely. The word. He is the word. Yes. So he's declaring, uh, proclaiming Jesus in this Absolutely. case. Absolutely. Yes, that's exactly, what, that's exactly what he's talking about. Entrusted with the mysteries of God, talking about the gospel of salvation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, the fulfillment of the word. Yep, absolutely. Okay, Titus chapter 1. So we're stewards of proclaiming God's truth. We're stewards of proclaiming the gospel. <clears throat> we're also stewards in another area. Let's read this together. Uh, Titus chapter 1 verse 7. Since an overseer or a steward, there again, manages uh, God's household, he or she tonight must be blameless. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good. One who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. Listen to this. So that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is exactly what Paul's talking about. The, the stewardship is, it's proclaiming, but, but before proclaiming, we've got to know. But it's not just to know in our heads, it's to live it out with our life. And Paul says we have a stewardship, and, and if we've been given this, this mystery, the secrets of God, and, and, and if it's true, and we say we believe it, our lives are radically different. And it's evidenced in our life. Our belief, our faith is evidenced in that there's certain things that we no longer do. Or if we do them, we're convicted really quickly. 
There's certain things that they're new habits in our life because God's begin to change our desires. And so this stewardship, it's seen in our personal purity as well. In the way that we live our life. That we are different. The Bible says we're set apart. The Holy Spirit of God purifies us, sanctifies us, convicts us when we do wrong. How do you know that that's the Holy Spirit of God working in you to, to tell you to do that? Well, the difference is between condemnation and conviction. Holy Spirit of God never condemns. Have you ever messed up, done something wrong, and you're just like, I'm an idiot. I stink. Why did I do that? That's condemnation. Conviction from the Holy Spirit is, I love you, but you really messed it up. Come back to me. Condemnation causes us to try to run away from God. Conviction draws us near. And that's how God works in our life. So Paul says in verse 2, Now it is required that those who have been trusted with, that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Get this, the most important quality of a steward is faithfulness. So, so if, you're, if you're judging whether or not someone is a, a steward, a good steward, if you're judging whether or not somebody is handling the secrets of God well, faithfulness is what Paul says is, is the quality. Let's, let's just talk about that. What does faithfulness look like in the life of a believer? Like practically, how does that play out in our life? Faithfulness is a big word. Let's, let's bring it down a little bit. How is someone faithful? Believing in something unseen. So knowing that, they're, it, that it's there, but you can't see it. Okay. So you would say at the root of faithfulness is the word faith. Correct. Yeah. Okay. He's getting all the work. From the uh, faith comes, faith as according to the Bible means uh, not walking by sight, but uh, not walking by sight. That's basically what it means. So being faithful according to me is not only knowing the word of God, but obeying the word of God and living it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I would just say trust. Um, Okay. I mean, even when things do look bad and everything's telling you, look, run the other way, something in your heart just says don't. And, and you either choose to trust that, like she said, you know, you can't see it. Yeah. But it links with your heart like a bond servant. You know, you just can't be ripped away from it. Yeah. And somehow something in your heart agrees with it. So um, even if it's a mustard seed, I mean, that sucker's going to grow. But yeah. I think it starts with trust. So Good. Okay, let's, let's, let's just pause here and get this. The essential quality of a good steward is not performance. It's not activity. It's not what you can do on your own. It's the faith that you believe. Do you understand the difference? It's, it's not that you are earning something. By your brilliance, your creativity, your ability, your, your effort, your church attendance. I, I didn't just come on Sunday. I mean, good gracious God, I came on Tuesday night. I deserve like extra credit, gold stars beside of my name. I'm really serious about you, God. 
says, no, 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 it's not your activities, not your church attendance. It's not how many times you prayed last week. It's your faith. We'll talk about this in a few minutes. The motives of your heart. So that's, that's the one essential quality is faithfulness. And, and that's why you would read in, in the end of Matthew, I think it's chapter 25, that one day we're going to stand before God and hopefully we will hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. You want to hear those words? Man, we were singing that last song. And when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? That's the words we long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. See, it's not our activity. It's not our performance. God provides his word. God provides his spirit. God provides his power. We believe. We choose. We make the choice to trust and follow him. He says we are required to be faithful. Get this. Here's another element of it. Not you are required to please people. You don't have to raise your hand on this one, but, but does anybody ever fall into that trap? People pleasing. You have expectations that other people put on you. You know, maybe we grew up in that kind of environment where, where our parents were, were maybe just a tad bit overbearing and, and, and they had these expectations and, and we were doing things always to earn their approval or maybe it was in school or maybe it was with our set of friends and, and we were always doing things, always living a way that we were trying to make people happy and please people around us. And somehow in the mix, we, we've, we've translated that over to our relationship with God. And we think if we could just do enough, he'll finally be happy with us. If we could just stay busy enough or look busy enough, if nothing else, we'll fool him and he'll be happy with us. But, but Paul says very carefully, he says, it's not about people pleasing. And that's why he's calling out these leaders and he's saying, hey, wait, wait a minute. There's, there's something going on here in the church of Corinth where, where people are living their lives based off of what other people are expecting or trying to make other people happy. And Paul said, the expectation is... This, very simply, please God. Please God. It's not as important what other people are saying. Please God. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul writes this. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So it means to be a servant of Christ, to be entrusted with a stewardship, is that we're faithful, not to meet others' expectations, but faithful before God. So let's just break it down to our responsibilities we have here. How many of you are parents? Okay. How many of you are a husband or a wife? How many of you are a brother and a sister, or a sister, I'm sorry, a boss or an employee, a neighbor? You've been called to be faithful in every single one of those areas of life and in every aspect of our life. And where the rubber hits the road is the, the call of God to proclaim those mysteries that we're talking about, proclaim the, the gospel, to, to proclaim and to live a life that, that is pure and holy impacts every single one of those relationships, every one of those responsibilities that we raised our hand for and every other area of our life. Faithfulness is demonstrated in how we Live every area of our life. 
there's not one area that's off limits. I mean, can you imagine if I'm saying, hey, I'm training for a marathon. I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to work out. Maybe I'm going to try to be a bodybuilder. Whatever it is, whatever that exercise is, I'm going to do that. But then I'm, I, I love buffet bars. So I'm also going to hang out at the buffet every day, like three meals a day. But I'm going to do all that kind of stuff, too. I want to be really, really faithful in working out. And I'm going to be really, really bad at gorging myself at the buffet. You're like that one little area. It impacts everything, right? And, and Paul says, you can't have one area of your life that you say, I'm going to be faithful in everything. Except that. Because Paul says it'll, it'll bleed over. It, it will have consequences. It will impact. Okay, so he says, be faithful. You get the point. Let's keep going. Now Paul turns his attention to, interestingly, uh, his reputation again and how people are judging him and other apostles. And and he's telling the weakness that's in human judgment. Look in verse 3. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Okay, let's just stop there. What's Paul talking about? He says, I don't, I don't care that much if I'm judged by you. I, I, I don't care that much. Does, does that sound harsh to you? I don't, I don't care if I'm judged by you. And he says, indeed, I do not even judge myself. What do you think that means? Anyone want to take a stab at it? Yeah. Because uh, he, he's not living anymore. He's saying that Christ is living in him. Okay. Yeah, Absolutely. Can you honestly say, I don't care what other people think about me? That's a hard thing for some of us to say. I can say it better than my wife can say it, but that's just relative. I mean, there's other things that I really care what, what people say. Yeah. I think in Paul's case, the, the opinions of man don't, don't matter. Okay. Yeah. And, and I don't think he's saying, I don't care, like, I don't care, like flippantly or callously or like I'm independent. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Don't judge me. That's that's sort of how our culture handles. I don't think he's going there. I think he's saying the weight of the opinion of others. And he says, even a human court, the weight that they have. Isn't my guide, doesn't instruct me, doesn't inform my decisions. And then he takes it a step further. He says, I don't even judge myself. So here's what he's saying. He's saying people, people are, are bad examiners of who you are. Because guess what? They don't know your heart. So Paul says, I'm not going to let them bother me. But he goes a step further. He says, I don't even judge myself. He's saying, I'm even bad at judging myself. Because I have a, a, a distorted, you know, all of us have this fallen nature that sometimes we're really either overly harsh on ourselves or we give ourselves way too much credit. And sometimes we fall into one of those two camps. So Paul says, I don't even judge myself. Verse 4. Actually, before I go there, let me say this. There was a book that came out two years ago, I think, called Unchristian. And this book said the, the reputation that Christians in America have... In the eyes of non-Christians, the way that non-Christians look at Americans is not favorably at all. They are hypocritical, homophobic. There's a a few of them, but the top three that I remembered was, and number three, judgmental. But to the typical person that was in this survey that, that, that was not 
a believer, not in church, their opinion of Christians was you're just a bunch of hypocritical, judgmental people. And Paul is telling the Corinthians, hey, hey guys, I know you're judging me. And I just want you to know, I'm not living for you. See, see, we all judge people, right? We, we all, sometimes we don't even want to, but, but we're in a trap sometimes of we're judging people. We're making these judgments. And, and Paul just says, hey, hey, honestly, that's not, that's not going to be something that, that guides the way I live. Let, let's just go through a few of these. Grab your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. Paul's saying, I know you're judging me, and here's some of the different ways that I've been judged, and they're not very favorable. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 17, he's been judged as this. Not that, that this, these are things they've uh, said about him. Your speaking is not with eloquent, eloquent wisdom. Chapter 2, verse 1. We'll just do a survey real quick. Just simply not with eloquence. I did not come to you with eloquence or superior wisdom. These are little jabs because the Corinthians are saying, we love wisdom, we value eloquence. And Paul's like, I didn't come that way. Chapter 2, verse 4. Not with wise and persuasive words. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. They were looking for wise and persuasive words. Paul says, that's not me. Chapter 3, verse 2, he's, he's ridiculed because they're picking on him saying, you give us milk and not solid food. They're saying, your teachings are soft, Paul. You're watering it down, Paul. Can you believe that? The apostle Paul got flack for people saying, you're just not deep enough. That's what Paul got. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 10. The apostles are called fools for Christ. And it's not a flattering term. It's not a term of endearment. I mean, people sing songs that we're Jesus freaks. Well, well, when they were saying they're Jesus fools, they weren't complimenting them. They're saying, you're foolish. You've lost your mind. Keep, Keep looking in that verse. He says, we are weak. And the people of Corinth are saying, but we're strong. But man, Paul, you're weak. Um, The people are saying... We're honored, but Paul is dishonored. So the judgment that the people are making on him, Paul's saying, that's not what I'm living for. And can I just tell you, if we could really get to this level where, where we're living our lives to please God and God alone. And, and, and the pressure and the power that the opinions of other people have on us don't matter. Not because the people don't matter, but because we're living for someone who has the ultimate opinion. And we're living for someone whose opinion really matters with eternal consequences. Paul's saying that there's freedom found in Christ. There's freedom to escape the opinions of other people, the pressure other people put on you. And then let's go to verse 4. Paul says, the last part of verse 3, he says, Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Verse 4, my conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? Well, I'm not convicted about what I'm doing, so it must not be wrong. You're talking to someone who's, who's got an area of, of sin in their life and they're saying, but hey, my conscience is clear. Help us. How do we deal with somebody who says that? What do we do? How do we, how do we have a conversation with somebody who says, look, you think I'm doing something that's, that's sinful, but I'm not convicted about it. So I'm not feeling convicted about it. So it must not be wrong. Paul says, 
He's got a conscience that's clear. And as far as he knows, there's not an area in his life of disobedience. He thinks he's got it. But, but then he goes on to say, but, but just because he doesn't feel guilty, it doesn't mean he's clean and clear. Because this is the same Paul in Romans chapter 7 that says, what I want to do, there's things I know that I want to do, I'm supposed to do. And for some reason, I just don't do them sometimes. And there's these other things that I know I'm not supposed to do. There's lines I know I'm not supposed to cross. But for some reason, sometimes I find myself doing those things. So this is the same Paul that says, in this thing, I don't even judge myself. And because my conscience is clear, but, but that doesn't mean I'm innocent. Paul's saying, I'm not a very good self-evaluator evaluator sometimes. Sometimes I, I, I make the wrong calls myself. And he says, so then... It is the Lord who judges me. I'm not going for my own judgment because it's fleeting. It's based on emotions. It's based on feelings. I'm living for the Lord. God is his judge and the one who qualifies him. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says this. This is Paul admonishing his young little disciple, Timothy. He says, do, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who does not need to be ashamed and correctly handles the truth. Paul encourages him, do your best to show yourself to God, to prove yourself to God, because he's the one you're living for. Yeah. Is Paul also telling them not to put him on a pedestal because he is with faults, even though Absolutely. he speaks Absolutely. one way? But Absolutely. I think that's the authenticity of Paul, that, that he says on, on one level, what I just said in Romans 7. Sometimes I, I mess up. Sometimes I do what I don't want to do. Or I don't do what I know I'm supposed to do. But then at the same time he can also say. Follow my example. Because he knows that. That even if he, if, even if he takes one misstep in the wrong direction. He's going to correct that. Get back to God really quickly. And keep walking. So even in a pattern of repentance. He could say follow me. Because all of us are going to mess up. And I think Paul would be the first one to say. I'm, I'm the chief of sinners. And it's not about if you mess up, it's about when you mess up, when you sin, how are you going to respond? So Paul would say, even in the middle of my sin, follow my example of repentance. Yeah, absolutely. Verse 5. Paul says, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Paul is speaking to believers here and he is warning these Corinthians, be careful how you judge. Be careful how you judge other people's other people. So let's talk about this a little bit, because if our reputation as Christians in America from people who are outside of the church is very often we are judgmental. There's a line that the Bible draws for us. And says, there's certain things you're supposed to judge. And then there's other things, don't judge. How do we figure that out? How do we navigate between the two? Because there's certain things where, where it's very clear in scripture, judge. And then there's other where it says, don't judge. So if you have a, a piece of paper and a pencil, you can write some of these down. We'll talk about them. Paul gives a whole host of examples of, of these kind of things. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31. The, these verses that are in 1 Corinthians, I'll go slow so you can turn there. The, the other ones, I'll just blow right through. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. 
This is in the context of the Lord's Supper. And it's in the context of where Paul says, before you partake in the Lord's Supper in communion, you need to examine your hearts. He's speaking to believers. He's saying you need to examine your hearts. You need to see, is there any area of sin in your life? And if there is, he says, do not drink from the cup. Do not take of the bread unless you first repent, unless you judge yourself. So verse 31, but if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So Paul says, judge yourselves, judge sin in our own lives. He said, there's a, there's a very appropriate time to judge. Judge yourselves based off the authority of God's word. To, to, and a time of communion is, is a specific example. In that time to say, God, is there sin in my life? And if an attitude that you blew up at somebody the day before pops in your mind, then God says, repent of it right there. Judge yourself. That's an appropriate time to judge. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. You guys will get here in just a few weeks. But this is one of those extraordinary cases that's happening that's been allowed in the church at Corinth. Chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among among the pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of fellowship the man who did this? Skip to verse 12 real quick. He's basically calling them out and he says, what business is it of mine to judge those who are outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, but expel the wicked man among you. So Paul says, hey, the rumor has it, not just the rumor has it, but the gossip circles have it, that there's somebody in your church who, who is doing things that even the pagans look at and they're like, ooh, what? How could you allow that? And Paul says, shouldn't you deal with that swiftly? But instead you're laughing about it. And I don't think we have to dig too far in scriptures to say that a man who has his father's wife is probably crossed a line into sin, right? But the Corinthians say, look, look what's going on there. Can you believe that? Paul says, no, you need to judge those now because they are inside the church. They are claiming to be believers among your church at Corinth and have nothing to do with that kind of behavior. Judge it. But the authority that, that God has given the local church, the leaders of the local church, is if someone's in sin in their, in their midst, not to go judge them, to beat them up, to condemn them, but to judge them, to help them, to restore them. And Paul says, you judge that. You've got to judge that. You've got to deal swiftly with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Just this whole chapter is is about lawsuits among believers. And Paul says, don't do it. Verse 2. Do you not know that saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? So settle things on your own. You can can act judgment, mediation. You can do that. That, that's, That's wise and do that. Okay, real quickly. Acts chapter 17, verse 10 and 11. Talk about judge the doctrinal truths of what we are taught. But we're told, do not judge the personal convictions of a fellow Christian. There's some things that the Bible is really clear on. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. 
Or do this, do this, do this. But there's some areas where the Bible is just not, it's not clear. There's culture in the Bible that's different than ours. There's culture today that, that there's just some things that aren't black and white. There's personal preferences, personal conviction issues. And the Bible says you have no right to judge the personal convictions of somebody else if they're not scriptural. If there's not a scriptural issue, don't judge them. Turn, turn, I, I lied, I guess. I said I wouldn't make you turn here, but turn to somewhere else. James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 11. Paul says, brothers, do not slander one another. Don't speak against somebody. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but you are sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And there again, it's in the issue of personal conviction. It's in the area of, of just things that the Bible's not clear on. And, and Paul says this, you, you better be careful. And not judge somebody just because, well, my opinion is this and your opinion is that. And because my opinion has got to be the right opinion because, I mean, seriously, I love Jesus. You got to be wrong. And so you're going to judge that person. Paul says, you're not just judging that person. In that instant, you're actually judging God himself, the lawgiver. And you're judging the law. And you're like, I, I, I know better, God. I'll help you out on this one. I got your back, God. You must have missed this one. It's a loophole. I found it. He says, don't do that. You don't do that. Because when you're standing in judgment, you are on thin ice. You've got to be careful. Hold up. Fellow Christian, what if you see a fellow Christian and they're kind of lost? They, they are reading the Bible and they believe in this wrong message. Is it okay to advise them? Could you call it advice rather than judge? You know, like... Sure. Will that so be like judging? Because I'll be telling them what you believe according to the Bible, it's not right. Okay, absolutely. Will so, that be judging by that instance? Absolutely. There are, there are numbers of passages, and, and the one I gave you, Acts 17 being one of those, is we are called to judge the doctrinal truths of, of what we are taught. And so if somebody's saying, well, I believe this, and you're like, it doesn't line up with Scripture then absolutely advise, judge, counsel, encourage, whatever word you want to use. We're called to rescue brothers and sisters who've, who have been tricked to believe the wrong thing, going astray. And, and we've just got to be careful to, to not say, well, this is my opinion of what this is saying, but to say, I need to stand on biblical counsel and the authority of Scripture to say, according to the Bible, what you're saying is not lining up. And, and not just say, according to my opinion, you're messed up. Okay. Um, I just had a note. I was... Um, it, some examples of personal conviction versus biblical wisdom or... Sure. Sure. Good question. Okay. So I'll, I'll give you just the personal examples because I have a, an interesting background. Um, born and raised in the South in the Bible Belt, and in Southern Baptist church culture, which is just pretty fundamental. Um, so pretty fundamental. And, and like we had these statements at a church that I worked at in North Carolina where it would say, 
basically to the extent of, I won't even look at alcohol. I won't even be in the presence of a beer. I won't blah, 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 blah. Um, we are teetotalers. We are, we're going to do that to the, to the nth degree. Okay. So, so that's the culture that I was born and raised in. I moved to Chicago and became a pastor at a church in Chicago. And I get up there and there's a, a wedding for one of the elders of the church. Like not just elders like an older person, but like the leaders of the church. One of the head honchos of the church. His family. And there's an open bar. And I'm like, culturally, my, my upbringing from the South Bible Belt, I'm like, oh, I can't be around this. And I was very uncomfortable. But that was more because of the culture that I was raised in. And not the, the, the biblical authority. And so that's a personal preference, a personal conviction issue that, that I had to face and say, well, I'm going to be living in this environment for, for quite some time. I'm going to be working at this church. I better figure out what I believe. And I, be- I better figure out what the truth of the word is, not what my personal preferences are. So that's one example. I hope that helps a little bit. Okay. So, so just real quickly, we're going to end this in just a minute. I want to point out a couple of things. So Paul says, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. And he's, he's basically telling us, be careful not to stand in judgment because, here's the reason, God is the judge. Because God is the judge. And this is, this is how he judges. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. Now, now this, this is probably just best interpreted as simplistically as it possibly could be. What is hidden in darkness is simply things we do not know. Things we don't understand. And so he'll bring to light everything. He'll bring everything out into the light. And, and, and until then, we don't really have the right basis to make a judgment. Because how can I judge you? I really don't know your heart. I really don't know where you're coming from. Your backgrounds that led you to make that decision. So I better be careful. Wait and allow God to make the judgment. Because he will eventually bring everything that's in darkness into the light. But then also, look what it says. He will expose the motives of the heart. This is what really matters. Not our action, not our performance, not what's on the outside. Because let's be honest, usually what we're judging is superficial outside things. Not the motivating factors of the heart. Because guess what? I don't know your heart. You don't know my heart. So Paul says very plainly, reserve judgment. Allow God to be the one who judges. Trust that he knows what he's doing. And there will be a day, there will be a day where he brings everything that's in the dark into the light. Where we, he will expose the motives of the heart. So part of faith is trusting that he's going to eventually do that. Even if there's things we don't agree with, even there's questions that we have... Part of faith is saying, God, I trust that you're big enough. You're going to do the right thing. You're going to judge well. In the last part of verse 5, and we're through. At that time, that day that's coming, a future judgment that's coming, at that time, each will receive their praise from God. Every single believer, every single follower of Christ, we will receive praise in the end. We will receive a reward in the end because Romans 8 tells us there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we will have rewards at the end. There's a a judgment seat of Christ that is coming and this judgment seat of Christ that every believer will stand. It is not a judgment of punishment. 
It's a judgment of rewards. How did you live your life? Not are you saved or are you not saved? The judgment seat of Christ that every believer will stand before him. That is not a, are you saved or are you not saved? Are you going to heaven? Are you hell? That is you're saved. You're going to heaven. But it's a judgment of rewards. And Paul says each person will receive their praise and their reward at the end. So let God judge. He knows what he's doing. Trust him. And all of us as Christians, we will receive our rewards, but we've got to remember this. They're not based on our activity. They're not based on our performance. They're not based on our abilities or what we've done. They're based on our faith. Based on our faithfulness. Based on what we did with Jesus. Did we accept him? Did we believe in what true belief is? Not just knowing but a knowledge that leads to a life change and surrender to him and to his ways. That's what faith is, trusting him, that he knows what's best. And so there is that day that we can sing about, we can expect. There is that day that's coming where he is going to be our reward and he will reward us and we will forever live with him. So let's pray. God, we do um, stand in awe of, of the reality that, that you love us so much, God, that you're not looking at us and, and, and hoping that we get our lives together or hoping that we finally clean up ourselves or, or, or figure this thing out. You're, you're not looking at us and saying, well, if only they could act a certain way or if only they could be this, then I would love them the Bible says you love us while we were sinners, while we were messed up. And you made a way for us in the middle of our difficulties by sending Jesus. And so tonight we just, we thank you, we celebrate Jesus. And, and we just pray that, that Jesus, you would set us free. And you would set us free from living from the expectations of others. And, 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 and let us just live to please you. And set us free from performance-based activity. And, and, and lead us into a place where we're just living out faith. And living faithfully before you because of all that you have done inside of us. And God, I pray that, that you would allow us tonight as, as ministers... To be an example and, and to proclaim how great you are. Not just with our words, but, but with our words. But with our lives. And I pray tonight, God, for the men and women in this room. Give us a hunger for your word. A hunger for righteousness. And a desire to live every day for your glory, God. I just pray your blessings as we go tonight. I pray that you would help us to live out these truths. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much and we'll see you soon.